perfect. Hello and welcome to As It Comes, life from a musician's point of view. I'm Davina, I'm a freelance cellist based in London, and this episode is all about the disparities between genders in the classical music world. If these disparities exist in classical music, they definitely exist in our wider society. You'll hear me and my guest for this episode, Ellie, chat about how these manifest in lots of different ways shortly. But one thing that really sticks in the front of my mind is my tendency to be interrupted while I'm speaking by someone who traditionally hasn't had to worry about being interrupted before. Now, you may not think this is a gendered thing, and certainly aspects of individual personality and circumstances do come into play, but see if you relate. You'll be talking about a topic that you think you know well. Perhaps you are a female. Then suddenly, someone barges in and starts going on about that topic. Perhaps that person is a male. Perhaps you, as a female, have been given several micro-messages throughout your life that you shouldn't get upset, angry, or cause a fuss. Perhaps you, as a male, have been given several micro-messages throughout your life that you've got to show your knowledge, that you're the man, that not knowing something is a sign of weakness, and that is bad. I get visibly quite upset when I'm interrupted in conversation. This might surprise some people, but as a child, I didn't speak much. I had two older siblings that talked a lot. I was more of an observer. Once, a primary school teacher suggested to my mum that I see a speech therapist because she was convinced that at the age of five, I didn't know how to talk. Mum was like, she can speak. She'll speak when she has something worthwhile to say. My dad used to interrupt me a lot. I think he knows not to now. Even now, at the age of 34, I sometimes get flustered in conversation, trying to get out all the information at once, because deep down, I'm scared someone is going to interrupt me before I can finish. Weirdly enough, I've enjoyed Zoom conversations in the sense that I can take my time and speak at my pace, because most people have had to learn how to listen compassionately on Zoom calls. I say most people because some people still clearly do not know how to listen. If you're an interrupter, ask yourself, why do you need to speak up right at that moment? What if you waited until the speaker came to a natural cadence before coming in with what you're going to say? You might even hear something that affects what you were planning to say. And to nervous speakers, one thing that's really helped me has been consciously taking control of the pace at which I speak. Sometimes I feel like I'm speaking really slowly, but as I've heard in recordings, it comes out as surprisingly coherent because I've been able to take the time to order my thoughts properly. Strangely, I think this is why I don't mind public speaking at concerts, something that strikes fear into the hearts of many, because I know I won't be interrupted. Unless I get heckled, but that hasn't happened yet. And don't feel bad for saying, I'm still talking, or let me finish, when you're in the middle of a sentence. Try it. It's quite empowering. I say it a lot to students who think it's totally cool to keep on playing while I'm trying to explain something to them. What I haven't addressed are people who probably need to be interrupted more because they ramble on for ages. In that case, I would say, read the room. 
Right now, as a podcaster, I'm aware that you can't interrupt me, (laughs) but I am aware that your thumb may be hovering dangerously over the skip forward 15 seconds button, so I'll move on. See, I'm reading the room. Joining me for this episode is the founder of Her Ensemble, violinist Ellie Conster. Her Ensemble was formed during the pandemic and is the UK's first female and non-binary string orchestra. You know when you haven't seen someone for a while and then they sort of explode on social media? That's how I felt with Ellie. We used to teach for the same music service years ago. Didn't see her for ages and now she's doing some great things, which you'll hear about in our chat. We spoke about the disparities between genders in the classical music world, what you see in orchestras, freelance life, dress code and programming. You'll also hear about Ellie's pandemic pastime, which, after hearing about, left me temporarily flummoxed. Have a listen to my chat with Ellie. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. We're chatting today on a lovely spring day in 2021. And speaking of 2021, how has your year been so far? Oh gosh, I don't know where to start, Davina. (laughs) It's been (laughs) wild. So I've been doing a lot more working with my friends in pop before like the pandemic here. I've just basically been doing only classical stuff. Like maybe some sessions here and there. Um, And then obviously when that all stopped, yeah, that was really panic inducing, anxiety inducing. But I lived next door to other pop musicians who became like some of my closest friends now. They're all in the pop world. And we just started messing around, having fun. And I started writing string parts, which is something that I'd never even considered before. Like... I think one of my friends had asked me to put violin on a track on one of his songs. And I remember being like, like, there's no way that I'm going to do that without music. Like, I need to have the music. (laughs) And then cut to like a year later. You're doing like loads of that. I know what you mean, because it sort of engages a completely different part of your brain. I think we as classical musicians, so much of the time, we're so reliant on the dots in front of us. And then doing something with pop musicians they do everything off by heart it's a completely different skill yeah and there's something about allowing yourself to be vulnerable and like make mistakes because I feel very comfortable doing classical I know what I'm doing I know specifically like how to play things but actually since the pandemic really I can see how much doing that pop and like writing stuff has helped me in all aspects of my Mm. playing yeah exactly I think it's really important to acknowledge your vulnerability in Mm. that like making mistakes is okay and I think unfortunately in like kind of our line of work as classical musicians mistakes are seen as like okay try not to do that again you know yeah yeah but I have definitely learned the most through those mistakes (laughs) yeah yeah exactly it's really like difficult thing to get your head around yeah yeah yeah. you mean like learning from your mistakes and so that each time your base level goes up yeah I'll just introduce you to listeners who might not know who you are so you're a violinist and you're the founder of Her Ensemble which is the UK's first woman and non-binary string orchestra it's super exciting but it's kind of hard to believe that 
there hasn't been something like this until now, 2020, 2021. Mm. And it's been such a long journey for females and non-binary musicians Mm. to get to this point. Yeah. Um, But first of all, tell me about your musical journey. You know, you're based in London and you're a freelance violinist. Tell me about how your journey informed your setting up the ensemble in your experience. I really feel like it stemmed from that period of time writing string parts for musicians suddenly feeling like oh like there is another way to do things there's not just one way why do we do things this way starting to question everything really and realizing that you can kind of just make up your own rules like people just make up their rules like so you could just make your own what sort of rules were you sort of starting to question in the classical music world there are a lot of rules to question (laughs) (laughs) it was definitely to do with the sort of binary gender roles that we see in orchestra mostly for me it was to do with the clothes we wear how we appear to others how we really feel inside and like I felt like there was more to me than what I presented at work and I didn't know why I felt like I was maybe putting on a bit of a facade of something that I wasn't yeah I think you're not alone there I think because in some aspects of of classical music there is a lot of emphasis placed on the image of a woman when she's on stage Mm. it's like it's quite incredible like going into disparities I suppose between the gender roles that Mm. we're getting into but you know, how common is it to see the sort of silver fox, like, wisdomed man, Yeah. <laughs> you know, on stage? But very rarely will we see a woman of that vintage yeah. in the public eye anymore. I mean, yeah, Ida Handel, I guess. It's like yeah, yeah. the icon there. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's not really... It's not really seen. And even just, I'd never questioned the dress codes in orchestra... Which I think are changing, but you still see tails for men and then long black for women. Things Mm -hmm. like being told to cover my shoulders or not showing like too much skin on the ankles. Yeah, it seems very Victorian when you say it like that. It's like the ankle. It's not a particularly (laughs) sensual part of the body, I would think. No, but then I was like, why is it bad to be seen as sensual? Because... It's part yeah. of being a human and we, we pretend we're something at work, but I know that we are sensual people at home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, as you say, it is part of the human experience. And then you think about what um, composers are trying to say through their music. You know, mm. so much of what they write is of very sensual nature yeah. going along with this theme. Yet we get dressed up in these sort of tales and very uh, formal uniform, mm. which doesn't quite reflect what we're trying to communicate in our yeah. music, I think. So I guess I wanted to do something that veered away from that. I think it is kind of elitism because in pop, you do see more skin. There are less of these, I guess you would call them rules. Yeah, fewer rules and fewer just expectations Mm. of what a pop musician should look like because you can sort of do whatever you like. And I think with pop musicians in particular, being really different is something that can make you stand out and can make you a global icon. Yeah. So I think it started from that. And then I realized more and more of these issues would link to women and how women were treated differently in orchestra again. But it's like 
I feel like sometimes you wouldn't pick up on these things or I didn't pick up on them until I became more aware of them. But definitely as a younger female, I feel like sometimes I've been kind of either overlooked or because of how I look or how I dress, people assume things about me. Like what in particular? As a freelancer, like you don't want to come across too Mm. confident and you don't want to be too bossy especially if you're like leading something I don't want to get labeled as that and I do think it's more prevalent if you look female if you present as female there's absolutely true and in fact the word that you used bossy is a word that society almost exclusively reserves for females you'd look at a man and think authoritative you know yeah or like oh that's just his job you know he has to be like that But then as soon as it's like flipped, it's a bit of a different thing. Or the other one that I think is more common is I think I sometimes get put in a box of being like the good girl. And there's sort of like a paternal role that I end up playing into as well. I don't know, just these gender roles that just come so naturally. And it's so easy to play into them from both sides. But I guess it's just a societal issue as well Mm. and because I guess whether we like it or not we have both of us we've grown up in this patriarchal society and Mm. and it has informed the way that we do things so you know obviously as you say we do play into these things Mm. but it's just becoming aware of the passive roles that we take that we don't even realize what are some kind of passive you know gendered norms that you've started to confront this year a big one for me was not feeling like I have to go for a drink with people in order to like get booked like you don't have to add extra things to get booked again if people like you and they like your playing they'll book you again like you don't have to zhuzh it up or you shouldn't have to I guess it's tricky because it's a big part of networking isn't it in music so much of what we do in music is social anyway it just seems natural for everyone to yeah head to the pub and talk about future gigs and stuff like that but it's fun sometimes but um I guess just feeling like you can say no and <laughs> you won't be you won't be being rude by doing that yeah and you won't be blacklisted yeah I, I think yeah it's tricky isn't it I don't know if you find this, but I've definitely found this in the past that sometimes I worry so much about how something is going to come across. Speaking of the pub, actually, I just remember there was this one time, I think in 2018 or 2019, and I got a phone call from MAS, you know, the Musicians Answering Service, and it was for a very, very last minute orchestral booking. And I knew it would be too much of a faff to make it work. So I just said no. Mm -hmm. But then afterwards, I was just consumed by like, oh, my gosh, that orchestra has seen me say no to them. That's going to look really, really bad. And I was in the pub with all my mates and everything. And and I was like, oh, what am I going to do? They're never going to book me again. But then there was one guy who just said to me, well, no, it doesn't look like that at all to them. All they're seeing is that you said no. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we read so much in our actions, thinking that they're perceived in a different way, whereas really we just need to make that move and Mm. have faith in that. I think probably, if anything, it probably just looked good that you were busy and booked up (laughs) by everyone. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, I'm too busy with all my gigs. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you just you can't help but think the other way as well and just think oh yeah they're never going to book me again I've definitely had that thought as well <laughs> I don't know if it's more of a gendered thing but like I guess like as females we are sort of brought up to please other people a lot of the time yeah that's a massive thing I guess yeah. that's what um that's more of what I've meant when I said being able to say no you don't want to let someone down basically yeah but then you forget sometimes to think about yourself absolutely and I, I do think it's sometimes easier for men to say no to things I feel like there's a different level of stress that's involved in that process that whole thought process yeah it'd be interesting interesting to see things from that point of view I'm not a man so I don't have that insight so, <laughs> just imagine being able to be exactly who you were and express that without worrying how it's going to come across Mm -hmm. in society yeah (laughs) so I think the ensemble thing started with that in mind and wanting to create this space for women and non-binary people like a safe space basically because I did think the whole time I was like oh maybe I should include all genders because I don't want it to be excluding a gender but then I think it's important to have this space but then I feel like it's also everyone's issue isn't it it's not just a fight for women yeah it's for all genders yeah it's a tricky one I think it's just creating more space isn't it yeah basically because I think that's what sometimes people can see and and they'll be like oh you're excluding a gender Mm. and it's like well you know, if that gender has been traditionally included in all of history and then all of a sudden there's space for these people, mm. it's not taking anything away from them, you know, yeah. it's just ma- making it bigger. Yeah, and then my friend sent me this uh, YouTube video talking about, like, representation in music. There were just some, like, really shocking statistics that I'd just... I never knew about but then seemed so blatant when I heard them like the percentage of music that's played pre-pandemic it was like 3.6 percent of all of the classical music pieces performed worldwide like just 3.6 percent of those were written by women really yeah that's tiny yeah (laughs) Yeah. so then I was like infuriated (laughs) I was like no We will only play music by women. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm going to do something about it. Well, that's how things change, isn't it? Yeah. It's like coming face to face with the cold, hard facts and then being like, oh my gosh, this will not do. (laughs) And I didn't even realize that it was like a really recent thing that women were allowed to play in orchestras as well. Mm -hmm. It was like 1960s onwards, but like some orchestras, not till the 2000s, you didn't really see like women playing in them so I think that's why maybe like where these gender norms kind of came into it people sort of had to elbow their ways in and now we don't but there are still some like trickles of patriarchal norms that we see exactly the hangover of of olden times yeah yeah and it's just slowly elbowing our way in as you say making making more space and then hopefully we'll see more of a change from there Mm -hmm. but yeah definitely the orchestral thing because what I noticed on your website you talked about like passively gendering instruments yeah and you know and it's really interesting actually because I think we do it without thinking about it Mm. we associate certain instruments with particular 
genders. Mm-hmm. Why why do we do that, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's quite heteronormative as well. Yeah, in the way of the gendering of instruments and the dress code and the way we perform ourselves. So yeah, I just wanted to not do that. I take it the way that you didn't feel like you could express yourself in the dress code that you were expected to wear, that informed your decision for the ensemble wearing what it does. Um, Tell me a little bit about why you chose that dress code for the ensemble. Initially, I just wanted to do the exact opposite of what you would assume an orchestra wore, like colour, and also subverting these gender stereotypes so you'd normally see the men in tails or like a suit and I was like let's all wear suits and let's have them all different colors and really bright and in your face because I I see my friends in pop wearing stuff like that all the time and I was like I want to take that and put classical music in that context Mm. because I don't see why we can't why not yeah I want to have mood lighting I want to have drinks I want to have people clapping in the middle of like if they like a bit I want them to Mm. shout yeah yeah it's just enabling people to express themselves isn't it I just feel like it takes away a certain amount of self-consciousness and being able to relax a bit more and enjoy exactly like how many times have we put on our long black being like "Mm, is this long enough is it functional can I play my cello in this can I cover my shoulders but still play comfortably and it's like wouldn't it be great if we could just wear whatever I know that there are some orchestras that do that they just have casual clothing Um, and that is really great because it means that you don't have to spend that time in the dressing room I call this clucking over mirror space (laughs) I I guess that's the other thing like (laughs) how many see this makes me think like maybe Maybe down the line it will be all genders eventually, but how many guys do you see like wearing makeup in orchestra? Yeah. I don't know. True. Yeah. None. Not probably. Ma- not many, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then whereas that is a huge faff for people who do wear makeup beforehand with that expectation of we have to look a certain way on stage. The number of times where you've got to cut short your dinner break because we've got to go get ready. (laughs) I've got to go get some space in front of the mirror. And it's like, sometimes it's just nice to not have to think about that, right? (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. And with the dress code as well, I guess that might change as well. I'm kind of open to change generally because it started as one thing and already in six months, it's developed so much and I feel like I've made mistakes as well along the way and they've helped me understand what it is that I really want to do and how we can go forward so I think mistakes and change are necessary for growth and I hope it just keeps evolving like that. That goes back to what you were saying before absolutely learning from our mistakes and having those as tools in our arsenal to inform Mm -hmm. how we go forward in the future. As you mentioned before, you're aiming to play all music by female composers. What are some recommendations of your favorite pieces that you've performed or even discovered during the last wee while? Oh gosh, so many. I basically, I want to give these female composers from the past the platform that they haven't had because there are so many of them. I was so shocked when I found, I went on the, um, I think it's called Oxford Music Online, 
and there's literally like pages and pages and lists of all these female composers that I'd never heard of. And then I was like really annoyed. <laughs> like, why don't I know about these? Why wasn't I taught about them? And then I was like, okay, I want to give them the platform that they deserve and I want to do new music. So that could be people who identify as non-binary as well. I guess underrepresented genders was key. But yeah, my favorite... I'm just, I'm so obsessed with um, Germaine Taifair. Have you heard of her? Oh, wait, yes, I have. I did a post on her quite recently. I have heard of her because I think there is a wind ensemble in London named after her. Oh, really? Perhaps, yeah. Taifair. I didn't know that's how you pronounce it. I hope that's how you pronounce it. I was like, Taifair, so, but yeah, that's probably wrong. I think they're based in London. I love her music. It's like that sort of French Impressionist vibe. Yeah, it, yeah, I think that's one of my favorite styles of music. Oh, there are so many to choose from. My brain's like... <laughs> but that's brilliant, isn't it? Because I think um, it's great that you've gone to a point where you know about so many new female, not new, but so many female composers mm. that you can't choose between them, you know? In the yeah. same scope that we've had this smogs board of male composers for our entire lives and when people are like who's your favorite composer it's like oh just one it's so hard to choose because there are so many of them <laughs> yeah yeah but you know I think it's fantastic to get to that point where you're like I can't decide yeah and you're not just gonna say the same one that everyone says yeah I guess it's just um rewriting like the canon that you assume when you think of classical music I never in my head I never used to think of female composers when I thought of classical composers I just went straight to like a male figure in my head yeah and what's really interesting is how just by default we'll say a male composer's surname and it's like that's kind of normal it's like oh that's the man obviously but Mm -hmm. as soon as we talk about female composers we always have to say the first name as well yeah yeah to differentiate like just to illustrate it's like oh this is a female actually I said to my friend I was like I'm gonna start saying male composer from now on (laughs) because I always say like (laughs) female composer and I had the same thing um we're trying to organize our first gig and we want to have a brewer and I found this really cool brewer who lives in Walthamstow they're called wildcard brewery but the brewer is a she and I felt compelled to say, oh, and we've got a female brewer. But I yeah. guess it's just because it's like still not really the norm, is it? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? Like, for example, we always say Schumann. And yeah. you just assume that you're talking about Robert Schumann. Or Marla. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, now I'm going to say Robert Schumann. Yeah. Or Clara Schumann, you know. Alma Marla. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because people just, people just assume, don't they? Yeah, I do too. But I, yeah, I guess it's just a little bit of like brain retraining. Yeah, it's baby steps, isn't it? Yeah. And obviously like, you know, we can't change it overnight. But no. I think by doing these small things, you know, we can bring it to the public consciousness yeah. a little bit more. Oh, that was another thing that I remembered from before when you asked about um, what are some of the gender norms? that you've found in orchestra the other one that I realized was that when a female composer was programmed (laughs) that often it would be a contemporary composer and it was usually like 
quite out there or like atonal and so people had this assumption in their minds that that's what female composers wrote like whereas like there have been female composers writing in so many different eras styles of music but I feel like the programming can sometimes be a bit I don't know if this is a good thing to say like people want to show that they're making an effort so they're like oh and we need to program a female composer (laughs) without necessarily having done like the research so then they'll like just bung one in so it looks good and then they'll put it next to something like a Gustav Mahler symphony and it'll be like well if you put those next to each other it doesn't really like complement it. Yeah, it's it's quite disparate, isn't it? And then everyone's like, oh, everyone remembers the Mahler. And then oh, what about that piece in the middle? Uh, Crappy piece that, by a female composer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then the, I think the danger there is, especially if it's something that people aren't particularly attuned to, mm. something that's not palatable, should we say, because I think it's important to say that some female composers are going to compose things that are terrible as yeah. well as wonderful. Of course. You know. But if there's something that people don't like, then it's easy for people to kind of typecast, you know, mm-hmm. in the same way that you typecast a particular actor mm. in a film or something and be like, oh, well, all music by those people are terrible. You know? Yeah. And then without that research, as you mentioned before, people like actually taking the effort to look into music by female composers from the past thousands of years, then people become very easily dismissive of female composers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because there were fewer female composers, like, opposed to male composers, but they are still there. That's the annoying thing, that you do have to look a bit harder. Like, the music isn't as ready available on IMSLP. Sometimes it won't be necessarily arranged for the right instruments, so... That's a big part of it, which I guess ties back into like writing the string parts for pop. That was like really useful because now I'm arranging a lot of the music that we're doing. So that's helped, but it takes a bit more effort (laughs) to do a bit of um, researching. And also I didn't even know that there were non-binary or trans musicians. Like I couldn't, I didn't know any. And then I didn't even know that there were any trans or non-binary composers. I'd never heard of like one before, but there are a lot as well. (laughs) I guess because that's that's the thing about music. It's a form of communication. And so of course it's not going to be a form of communication that is afforded to only one section of society. Mm. You know, I think we have to remember that. Yeah, yeah. Remember to look and make these choices yeah and I guess if you see well we know this like more of a variety of different people on stage then that's gonna attract a more varied audience as well and it's gonna be more inclusive and people are gonna feel like they belong and they're wanted yeah the visibility factor Mm -hmm. is really important isn't it how you're not going to go to a concert if you just feel really, really uncomfortable. Yeah. Be like, this is not for me. I don't yeah. see myself represented here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Totally. As you may or may not know, I have a segment in my podcast called The Wildcard Question Round. This is your opportunity to choose what I ask you next based on three topics that I okay. present you. So your topics are, and these are quite random, what's in your case, finish the sentence, and non-musical pursuits. 
Okay, let's do non-musical pursuits. Great. Okay, so away from the violin, what can you be found doing? Besides, you know, arranging and all that stuff. Like what's something non-musical that you just love doing? Art. But that's maybe that's the same thing as music. I mean, like I think there's a lot of parallels between the two, but it's In lockdown, I um, I started giving my partner tattoos (laughs) with stick and poke. With what? Stick and poke. Have you heard of that? No, I don't know what that is. (laughs) It's so you know, if you get a tattoo, it just goes like really quickly like that. So it's just a big needle. Oh wow! Is it permanent? (laughs) Yeah. Oh wow! (laughs) Oh my gosh! So you're a tattoo artist? I was not expecting that. (laughs) But untrained. (laughs) <laughs> oh my god so what kind of tattoos does your partner have courtesy of yourself I've given him a Manchester worker bee I've done a little lockdown lock <laughs> <laughs> and I did a um just a little design on my friend which was like a face and a flower and a rose what attracts you to doing tattoo art Honestly, that was a lockdown thing as well. It was like, oh my God, we can't do our jobs. I'm just going to try anything. And then we were like, should we get a stick and poke? Because we'd seen that was like a a lockdown trend. And so I was like, fine. Yeah, whatever. I'll give that a go. I think that was like the thing with lockdown. It was like, I was suddenly not worried about like making these mistakes and having inhibitions because the worst had already happened. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? Everyone was like, let's have a go. Let's make sourdough. Yeah, let's yeah. learn a new skill. Let's tattoo our partner. It was definitely like a thing, I think. Because mm-hmm. why not? Yeah, that's brilliant. <laughs> Did you make any like massive mistakes? Any? I made a really blunders? horrible sourdough, if that's what you mean. Oh, okay. I, I meant in terms of um, in terms oh, of. Oh no, no, I don't think so. They came, they turned out all right, actually. Oh wow, I'm yeah. really impressed. <laughs> you know, we've been talking about making mistakes and how it can be quite scary to make those mistakes, even though mm. they increase our growth. But I feel like for me, I'd be really scared of making a mistake doing a tattoo on someone else's body. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd be more worried if it was on my body. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's just your arm. Like, it's fine. (laughs) You don't care. (laughs) But I think there's an element of like removing your ego. And that's kind of helped with that. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, I guess the reason why I feel nervous sometimes is because I'm worried about what other people are going to think of me. But Mm. actually, at the end of the day, like, if you're happy doing it, then doesn't really matter what other people think because they don't have to live in your body. That's so true. Yeah, it kind of goes back to what we were saying before about yeah. how other people think of you and quite often it's like they're not going to have the same thoughts that are running through your brain. Yeah. It's hard to remember that. But it's like really hard to remove that fear because I think that is part of your ego, especially in yeah. like performing or doing yeah. tattoos. <laughs> Doing tattoos. Well, that's another thing that you don't see much in the classical world or no. you get told to cover up a lot is, is tattoos, right? Yeah, and piercings as well. Yeah, I don't actually have any piercings, so that's, yeah. I've, I've never I've never had that problem. But that is definitely something that people get told to remove. Yeah, 
Bra. Definitely. Brilliant. Um, well, thank you for your answer to the wild card question round. It's the first time I've ever had anyone say that they were into tattoo artistry. So that's the first. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Ellie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> Before you go, um, where can people find out more about yourself and her ensemble? On Instagram, we're just at her ensemble music. Or I think on Facebook, we're just at her ensemble. Same with um, Twitter or on our website. I think it's herensemble.org. Brilliant. We will put those links in the show notes. Um, Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. That was my chat with Ellie Conster the founder of Her Ensemble. Remember to check out the show notes to find out a little bit more about them, especially as we're emerging slowly back into live performances, so I'm sure there'll definitely be some events to look forward to. Thanks, Ellie. You would have heard Ellie mention a composer named Germaine Taifer in our conversation. Unsurprisingly, I knew very little about her, so I did some research. Germaine Taifer was born at the tail end of the 19th century and had a musical career spanning over six decades. She had piano lessons with her mother from an early age, going on to study at the Paris Conservatoire, defying her father who thought that musical studies were not suitable for a young lady. At Paris Con, she met five guys, not the burger place, but fellow composers. You might have heard of Francis Poulenc or Darius Mio and spectacularly mispronounced their names. Collectively, they became known as Les Six. She won all the prizes in harmony, counterpoint, and accompaniment at the con, but her chance to showcase her talents in the composition prize was thwarted by the First World War. If only we knew what it was like to have your creative practices interrupted by a seismic global event. Moving back and forth between France and America, Ty Fair composed right up until her death at the age of 91. She even studied with Ravel. Her repertoire list is enormous, including various concertos, chamber music, and music for ballet, radio, TV, and film. So if you've just discovered her today, you could start exploring her music now, and that'll keep you going for longer than a Netflix series binge. Guaranteed. There's also a London-based wind ensemble called the Thai Fair Ensemble with the aim of promoting women in music. So it seems that Germaine is seeping into the classical music world's consciousness gradually. Good stuff. That's it for today. Special thanks to Ros Nagy for my logo and Daniel Elms for my jingle. Tremendous thanks to Ellie for being my guest in this episode. And as always, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, you can support the podcast by buying me a coffee on my coffee page. Link is in the show notes. Get in touch at asitcomespodcast at gmail.com or on the website asitcomes.com, where you'll also find all previous episodes and transcripts of the podcast. You can also get in touch with me via Instagram and Facebook, where I highly recommend you give me a follow and a like at asitcomespod. Remember to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to those who have already done so and thanks for continuing to spread the word. Chat to you soon and take good care. Bye.